Uh, it's a phrase that is often found on the lips of Christians. In various contexts, uh, for one thing, uh, it's sometimes on the lips of departing friends. As we say to those who go from us, God bless you. God bless you. And of course, it's frequently found also on the lips of praying Christians as well. As we intercede for people or for programs, we often pray that God will bless so-and-so or such-and-such. And then, of course, on other occasions, we simply hear it in the aftermath of somebody sneezing. Uh, I still can't quite understand this. It's for reasons beyond my comprehension. But whenever I sneeze, people around me say, God bless you. God bless you. Of course, you could argue against making such a prayer for someone that God would bless them. Or indeed to make this statement that you so often hear. We wouldn't want to take issue with this desire. Nevertheless, it is a fascinating fact, as you scour the pages of the New Testament, uh, the Gospels and Acts, the Epistles and Revelation, indeed as you insert the, the entire New Testament canon, that you do not find a single instance of an individual praying for someone else that God would bless so-and-so. It's the kind of thing you find more in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we don't find this kind of prayer. And instead, what we discover is another striking emphasis. Not so much the prayer that God will bless us, but praise to God since He already has blessed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in no small measure, the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Ephesus, expounds at length on the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Indeed, he says that as Christians, we already have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's not something we need to pray for. It is something to praise God for. Now, we learn about this in Ephesians chapter 1. And I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 with me this morning. And especially if you're a Christian today, I would wish to remind you, as Paul reminded the Ephesians, that whatever your physical blessings, you have every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus this morning. Hope to refocus your mind and refresh your spirit with these truths. It is Ephesians chapter 1, and we're reading from verse 3 to verse 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever bought a product or seen a product advertised that is described on the selling package as out of this world. Out of this world. The experience, the product, is going to be out of this world. And often when this phrase is used, it's because it's perhaps a new product and maybe the, the, the audience have nothing to compare this particular product with. It is of a completely different category and of a completely different nature to what they have otherwise experienced. Well, I think the Apostle Paul as he begins this first chapter of Ephesians, would say to us this morning that the blessings we have in Jesus Christ are truly out of this world. He says they are of an altogether different class to the blessings that we normally experience in everyday life. And this is why Paul begins, you notice in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now, how has he blessed us, Paul? In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul, right from the beginning, begins to reorientate our thinking. We usually think of blessings in terms of material things. Money and marriage and health and homes, and cars, and children. But Paul says, no, I'm speaking of spiritual, not material blessings. You need to to change your perspective here. And he underlines this by adding, you also notice, that we shouldn't seek these blessings in the earthly sphere. They are located, he says, in the heavenly realms. So as well as being spiritual, not material, they are also heavenly, not earthly, in terms of their origin. And so, even before we get into the specifics of these blessings, and we're going to be unpacking them in just a moment, Paul is reminding us 
why these blessings are just so difficult for ordinary people in this day and age to understand. Because we live, do we not, in a very materialistic world. Few people today are interested in spiritual blessings and in heavenly blessings. There are not many people today who, at this very moment, will be walking up and down the Gale Shopping Centre asking themselves, where can I buy some spiritual blessings today? Where can I get my hands on these heavenly things of which Paul speaks about? No, they are saying, where is the mobile phone shop? And where is the clothes shop? And where can I buy and purchase my next holiday abroad? And so on. But spiritual blessings? And before we point the finger, let us remember that we too so easily fall into this earthbound perspective. And God would have us fix our eyes this morning once again on the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, I found this week really helpful three questions. Three questions that help us to unlock the meaning of the blessings that Paul is speaking about. The questions are these. First of all, what are the blessings? Secondly, who are the blessed? And thirdly, why the blessings? So, this is where we're going in the next however many minutes we go. First of all, what are the blessings that Paul describes? We know that in general terms they are spiritual and that they are located, as it were, in the heavenly realms. But what specifically are some of these blessings he's talking about? Well, notice three things that Paul mentions. And we could really take a whole sermon on each of these, but we'll just take a couple of minutes. First of all, the blessing of election in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, look at it with me in verse 4, that he, that is God the Father, chose us or elected us in him, Jesus, before the creation of the world. Now, this is, at one level, very straightforward, what Paul is saying. We can understand the point that he's making, but on another level, it is quite staggering to try and understand how this all works. And if you've ever been baffled a bit by election, then let me reassure you that the great minds of the Christian church throughout the century have wrestled with this doctrine and have struggled to get to the bottom of its profundity. One of the things that I find very interesting here is that Paul is not actually interested in all the questions that we tend to raise about the issue of election. Uh, How does God's choosing us and our uh, choosing God coexist? Paul simply bypasses these things and he says, no, election, it's just a fact. He just assumes this truth that God chose us before the beginning of time. And he goes on to focus, notice this with me, on the purpose of election. In fact, a twin purpose. First of all, in verse 4, that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, that first purpose is the purpose of holiness, to be saints. And so often we're debating the first part of the verse, God chose us, that we miss this second half, that God chose a people for purity. 
The implication is that before he chose them, they were not pure. They were not holy. And yet God selects sinners and he reshapes those sinful people into saints. That's an amazing purpose in God's election. And did you see also a second thing in verse 5? In addition, he elects them to be sons. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. I can hardly think of a more amazing selection purpose than this. You know, you can be chosen for all sorts of things. Uh, I was speaking to Barry the other day about the football team and wondering how I might get selected for that. It didn't seem there was much opportunity. Uh, You might be chosen uh, for a job somewhere. Uh, You may be chosen uh, to be in a very high position of influence. Maybe to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But there is no election purpose so precious than to be chosen to be a son or a daughter. For someone to choose you to be part of their home and part of their family and part of their love and care. And yet this is precisely what God has done. He has chosen a people and he has brought them into his home, into his family. You know, don't you, that when we speak of the church family, that we are not using just a quaint bit of speech. Uh, We're not even using an analogy. We're not saying that the church is like a family. We are actually saying that in reality, the church is a family. God is our Father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, for we have actually been adopted into the same family through Christ. These are the twin purposes why God has chosen us. And and therefore, it really has struck me this week that election is no abstract doctrine. If we are not elected, we are not adopted. And if we are not selected by God, we are not saints. We have no opportunity of holiness. Now, Paul briefly runs on from this. What a huge theme to deal with in two verses. But Paul, he's like a runaway train in this passage and the waterfall just cascades and and he says not only did God bless us in the past with election, but also he has blessed us in the present. And now he turns to redemption in the seventh verse. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption, it's a Ye oldie sort of word, isn't it? What does redemption mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand that redemption relates to the justice of God. Redemption exists only because God's justice exists. You see, God will not, though he could do, God will not simply choose people who have odiously rejected him And God will not just sweep their sin under the carpet because he's a just God. Some punishment must be given. Some price must be paid. Would it it be just in your mind to take the worst serial killer on the face of the earth, perhaps sinning on death row, and just, just free them, just let them go? And wouldn't it be even worse if you then brought them into your house, you just adopted them? No punishment. 
Sin swept under the carpet, that would not be just. And the Bible says also that God, that we must pay a price for our sins. The Bible says, in fact, that we are slaves to sin, is the language it uses. Sin is the crime that has locked us up, spiritually speaking. And we require someone to pay a price for our redemption. See, that's where the word redemption was used in these days. There were many slaves in the ancient world, and the only way that you could be freed from your master was by someone paying a price for you, a ransom price, usually money, for you. And that would set you free, redeem you. Well, listen, says Paul, I have got a blessing for you. When we were slaves to sin, God set us free, and His own Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ, paid the ransom price with, notice, His own blood, through redeeming blood. I wonder how many of you with children would give a son or a daughter, even if it was for the purpose of setting free someone else. God gave His Son. Christ shed His blood that we might be set free from sin slavery. And what is more, says Paul, as he develops this, the blessing is added that we know about this fact. We know about it through God's revelation. You see, there's no point in Christ dying to redeem us if you do not know that He has done that for you. But, says Paul in verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of His will. And he also goes on to say in verse 13 that you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so in its origin, redemption comes through the blood of Jesus. But in its application, it comes as the gospel is preached, as redemption is proclaimed, and as we hear the gospel and we accept it by faith. Paul says these are two remarkable blessings that are part of our redemption through revealing truth, through redeeming blood. Blessed in the past, election. Blessed in the present, redemption. And Paul also adds that they are blessed in the future as well. With a glorious inheritance. Verses 13 and 14. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. Incidentally, have you noticed so far that all the members of the Godhead are involved? The Father in election, the Son in redemption, and the Spirit now in our inheritance. The whole might of the Trinity is working to bless us. And here the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. I think Paul is simply making the point that as wonderful as the past blessings are and the present blessings are, there is more to come. Uh, Prince William, we learned the other week, came into a sizable amount of money. Uh, you may have seen that. And yet, as you read the report of it, he also has another huge payment coming, I think when he's 30 years of old, years of age, he gets the whole inheritance. Well, it's kind of like that with us. That even now, we have redemption through Jesus Christ. We have freedom in Him, spiritually speaking. 
But there is a day of, that is coming. It's the day of redemption when Jesus will come to physically and fully and finally redeem us. And Paul says that we already have abundant riches in Christ, but there are riches to inherit beyond our imagining when Christ returns. It's a very comprehensive blessing, is it not? Blessed in the past, blessed in the present, blessed in the future, blessed by the Father, blessed by the Son, and blessed by the Holy Spirit. And every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, we could ponder this longer. This is the crux of what Paul does. He describes these blessings, but we need to move on to two other uh, brief questions. First of all, who are the blessed? That's something that I would like to know, actually, after reading about all these wonderful blessings. Who are the blessed? Who are the people that actually qualify for these blessings? You've maybe known the experience when you're watching the, the budget once a year and the Chancellor comes on and he talks about a wonderful tax break that's going to be available and he tells you how much money you're going to save every month and you're jotting it all down and then he gets to the end of it and you suddenly realize that you don't qualify because you're single and it's a marriage tax break or something like that. Well, Paul tells us who qualifies for every blessing in Christ. And he begins, I suppose, in the, in the reverse way. He, he first of all starts talking about who's not disqualified. And first of all, he tells us that there is no ethnic disqualification when it comes to these blessings. This may seem a rather subtle point, but you need to pay attention to the pronouns that Paul uses in this section and, and how they progress. Did you notice, for example, in verses 3 to 11, that Paul uses the repeated term, us. Us. For example, verse 3, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, predestined us. And so on it goes, all the way down to verse 12. And then in verse 12, he intriguingly adds this statement. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And then as we go into verses 13 and 14, Paul shifts from speaking about us and we to talking about you. Did you notice that? And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The obvious explanation is that Paul, he's writing as a Christian, of course, but he is writing as a Jewish Christian. He comes from the background of Judaism. And, of course, everybody knew that Christ was the fulfillment of Judaism. And that, therefore, all these spiritual blessings, naturally, would relate to them, to Paul and his kindred. And so, when he says us, and when he says we, he's speaking about Jews, like himself, who have come to know Christ. And all of the blessings of Jesus belong to them, we know this by verse 12, but then we're asking ourselves, what about the rest of us? Do these blessings apply to non-Jewish people? Do they apply to Gentiles, as they're often called? And Paul's answer is an emphatic yes. He says, you also, 
you also have been included in all the blessings he's just mentioned when you heard the word of truth. That's what we've seen in Luke's gospel this year. If you've been here in the evenings, good news of great joy for all people. Nothing in your background, in your ethnicity, in your previous religious ventures, or even in your bad behavior can disbar you from these blessings. You're not ineligible. Wherever you come from, whatever you've done, however, there is one essential qualification. This is not an absolutely inclusivist message by any means because Paul adds two little words that are absolutely critical to obtaining these blessings. And did you notice them in the passage repeatedly? In Christ. It comes in almost every verse. Some reference to being in Christ. It is, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are adopted as His sons, verse 5, through Jesus Christ. It is in Him we have redemption, verse 7, who is Him in Christ through His blood. In Him we were also chosen, verse 11. And you were included in Christ, Paul says in verse 13. You see, what matters entirely to Paul and to God is that you this morning are in Christ Jesus. That's all that matters this morning. It really does not matter that you are in church today. And it really does not matter whether or not outwardly and externally you are a religious person or in your mind a good person. The issue is this, are you in Christ? You say, what does that mean? Well, to be in Christ, it simply means to know Christ, to be in a living relationship with Him through faith in Christ. And when we trust in Jesus, the Bible says, we come into union with Christ and all of the blessings that are for us in Him become ours. It's the one condition to receive all these blessings this morning. And this is why if you come here week by week, Sunday by Sunday, you will always hear something about Christ. We go on about Christ in this church. Because texts like this tell us that unless someone is in Christ, he is out with the saving work of God, without the blessings of God, and without hope, and without God in the world. And of course, if you live out with the sphere of the blessed life, you live in cursed territory, not just in this life, but in the life to come, in eternity, when we meet God or judge. Are you in Christ today? If you have to think hard about that question, you are probably not in Christ. You don't need to think hard if I ask you, if you're married, are you in a relationship with your wife? Self-evident that you are. If you know God through Jesus Christ, you will know this morning because you're in a living, vital relationship with Him. And if you are not, then you can begin that relationship today. And these blessings can become yours. Now let me lastly touch on a beautiful point that Paul makes. Uh, we've touched on the what of the blessings and then the what and the who of the blessings. But thirdly, notice 
Why the blessings? Paul really makes much of this issue. I think he understands human nature, the way that we tend to be. That usually, if we are made much of, if people bless us and give us lots of things, usually, by default, we get into thinking that we must be so good that we deserve the blessings. We must be worth it, to use the advert phrase. And Paul says that would be a false impression of why God has blessed you. Listen, it is not to make much of you, but to make much of him. That's the ultimate purpose. Now, Paul says this in three different places. In verse 6, it comes like this. To the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And again in verse 14, just in case we've missed it twice before, Paul repeats, to the praise of his glory. And so what we need to understand is that the chief purpose of our being blessed by God with all of these wonderful treasures is so that we might in return praise God for every spiritual blessing that he has granted to us. The purpose is praise. Or to put it another way, if you have a, an ESV translation, I think it begins, Blessed be the God, God our Father, who has blessed us. We are to bless the God who has blessed us. Thinking about this, that we are not called as Christians just to be grateful to God. It is, of course, the case that we should be grateful to God. Paul says elsewhere that everything should be done with thanksgiving. We should be very thankful to the Lord. But you know, there are lots of people in this world that we thank for things. We thank the waiter if he gives us good service at the restaurant. And we thank the window cleaner if he shines well our windows. And we even thank the paper boy if he faithfully does his rounds. Thank you very much for that. But God will have it so that while many other people will be thanked, only he will be praised. He is so great. His blessings are so majestic that we really must do better than a few mumbling, bumbling words whispered once a week as we gather here on a Sunday while we stand with our hands in our pockets. God is not the paper boy. He has delivered his son unto death for us. And when we realize this, like Paul, when we are absolutely staggered by this fact, our thanks transposes into praise. And it just pours forth. Oh, to praise God like this. Don't you wish that this would be your heart and your words? It's a shame that in our English translations, it's, they've put it into wonderful grammatical sentences here. In the original language, this whole section is one unbroken paragraph, 212 words of non-stop, sprawling prose. It's, it's actually the longest sentence in the whole of the New Testament. Paul doesn't draw for breath as he views the breathtaking greatness of God. And did you notice what the object of his praise is? 
to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6. In verses 12 and 14, we just get the short form to the praise of his glory, which is true, of course. Paul says, ultimately, what we are to praise is the glorious grace of God. Now, just think about that for a moment before we finish. Why does Paul say, not just praise God's glory, but praise his glorious grace? Why does he put it like that? Here's what I think. If God gives great blessings to deserving recipients, they may still, because he is God and he is great, give him praise. And praise his glory. But if God gives his blessings to undeserving, unlovely, unholy people, then they will praise him not just for his glory, but for his glorious grace. You see the difference? Grace being unmerited favor that we have been granted. See, none of us today, none of us deserve God's choosing, God's redeeming, God's inheritance. And oh, how that makes our praise come with a louder voice and with a more lowly heart that we've received these blessings not on the basis of something that we do, but on the basis of what he has done for us. Reminds me of a story about Harry Ironside. He was pastor of Moody Church in Chicago and he was a preacher of grace and the glory of God in his grace. And there was a gentleman in his church who had it in his mind that it was all about what he did, what he could do for God. And one day, Harry Ironside said to him, you know, the problem with your religion is that it's only got two letters in it. He said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, your religion is a religion of D-O, do. He said, but my religion has four letters in it. He said, what do you mean? He said, it's D-O-N-E, done. Everything has already been achieved and already been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. You only need to receive it. And that is the same this morning for every person here. It has been done in the glorious grace of God. He has blessed us with every blessing. Have you received those blessings? Have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? He invites you to come. And if so, are you reveling in those blessings and focusing your mind and your praise upon them? Let's pray together. Father God, as we come and think about some of these themes, they really are so huge that it is hard for us to fully understand them. And Lord, even sometimes to respond in an appropriate way or to know how to respond. But we thank you, Lord, that you have called us here to praise as best we can. And so we pray that if we are your children, that you will constantly bring these blessings to mind, whatever our present situation otherwise is. And Lord, we ask this morning that if we do not know these blessings, that you will draw us to Christ, to the one who gave himself up for us all.
And we ask that you would help us now as we would sing your praise. And as we would go into this week, help us to give our lives as living sacrifices unto you. To the praise of your glory. Amen.